Well, good morning, everyone. Very good to see you. If you have a Bible, if you would please turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 2, page 817 in your church Bibles. If, if you have a worship folder in the back, you notice that there's two scriptures there, and one was read to us this morning during our worship. And so I'll read the second one. Let's hear the word of the Lord together. Now, when I went to Troos to preach the gospel of Christ and found, this is verse 12, chapter 2, and found the Lord had opened a door for me, I still had no peace of mind because I did not find my brother Titus there, so I said goodbye to them and went on to Macedonia. But thanks be to God who always leads us in triumphal procession in Christ And through us spreads everywhere the fragrance of the knowledge of him. For we are to God the aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and to those who are perishing. To the one we are the smell of death, to the other the fragrance of life. And here's where we need to pay attention. And who is equal to such a task? And like so many, we do not peddle the word of God for profit. On the contrary, we, in Christ we speak before God with sincerity like men sent from God. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again, or do we need, like some people, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter written on our hearts, known and read by everybody. You show that you are a letter from Christ, the result of our ministry, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on the tablets of human hearts. Such confidence as this is ours through Christ before God. And again, here's the important scripture for us this morning not that we are competent in ourselves to claim anything for ourselves but our competence comes from God amen let's bow together and just pray as we seek the help that we need this morning I will not boast of anything no gifts no power no wisdom but I will boast in Jesus Christ his death and resurrection. Father, we pray in Jesus' name for your help as we consider this morning's talk of inadequacy. And I pray that you would work in us if it pleases you the grace of weakness. And so we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All Christians are capable of being deceived. And the devil, the evil one, is the chief deceiver. Recalling the temptation of Christ, the devil would push us to extremes. Jesus, make a meal out of pebbles. Jesus, you can be a king without a cross. Jesus, why don't you make a name for yourself? Jesus, do something really extreme, really pompous, really vainglorious. You know, jump off a building and show me and show everybody what you're made of, Jesus. Show me and everybody who's boss. And so we ought to be mindful of his foul tactics. He's called in John 8, the father of lies. He's the father of inaccuracies. He's the father of propagandas, of half-truths, lies. He's the hinderer of God's work. 1 Thessalonians 2, he's compared to a mighty dragon in Revelation 11, though he disguises himself as a lamb. 
he blinds and darkens human minds so that the consequences of his deception are unable to be thought through and seen. 2 Corinthians 4, 4. He opposes the right understanding of God's word as we find him actually quoting scripture in his attacks against God's son. The evil one hates God's moral law. He is the mudslinger, the accuser of the church. He is constantly hurling accusations, relentlessly accusing the church of Jesus Christ. And we oppose his deceit. We oppose his deceit not in our own power though. But we oppose his deceit by the blood of the lamb and by the word of our testimony. In other words, we oppose him in Christ's power, relying on Christ's bold words of Christ's gospel truth that has been displayed in our lives. The Puritans would say, let the cross of Christ silence the devil's slander and put to death the devil's work. And in all this, I'm going to suggest to us this morning that the devil does some of his best deception when it comes to our usefulness to God. And that the mystery of being useful to God is inadequacy. Or if you like, the great and necessary advantage of being inadequate. And we're going to discover this, I hope, clearly in the life of the Apostle Paul. So while at first look, inadequacy as being seen as an essential for the Christian life seems almost a contradiction. It is a contradiction that runs to the whole of the Bible. For example, when I am weak, when I am powerless, when I am inadequate, all acceptable translations, then I am strong. The first will be last and the last will be first. That whoever wants to save his life must lose it. And if whoever loses his life for the gospel's sake will find it. That unless you enter the kingdom like a wee little child, you can't get in and so on. Each of these things glorying in human weakness and in human inadequacy. Therefore, this morning, what we're going to do is work under some headings that will bring this truth to light. First, we'll work through this idea biblically as we should. And then we're going to consider it culturally because it's always wise as, as Christians. We should have one foot in the Bible and one foot in our culture. Third, we need to understand this in relation to the church ecclesiastically, because it has to rhyme, right? Ecclesiastically, culturally, biblically. And then we're going to see if it applies to us personally. Maybe God has something to say to all of us personally this morning. And we're going to spend most of our time on the first, so don't panic. And then the other three we'll, we'll whip through carefully. First of all, then, biblically. We read in the tw- text there that, that t- the term inadequacy or incompetence. Well, it's defined by the Oxford Dictionary as an inequality in relationship to the size and the demand of the task. That's that's inadequacy. An inequality in relationship to the size and the demand of the task. And I think that when we think about our responsibilities that all of us have been placed into, whether we're blue or white collar workers, whether we're a teacher, a mother, a father, a friend, and so on, when you think about all those things and you couple that with our Christian calling then I would suggest to you that we are confronted on a daily basis with the reality that I suspect that in many ways our ability to do is far less than what is needed for the task. And I don't think that we have to go too far along that journey. If you're actually in that journey, I don't think we have to go too far along when we begin to realize this. And I think one of the ways we can see this is we look on our books, the kind of books that we read when it comes to Christian context. I suspect most of us have books that are of the trying to get better idea. 
And although we may have enjoyed a few successes, and although we might have a moment or two of glory, all glory, the Bible says, is fleeting. And so the demands of our task with the ability, couple that with the ability of ourselves to perform them, many of us would find ourselves saying that we are greatly inadequate. Now deep down inside then we would begin to understand why the Apostle Paul thinks as, as we read as he thinks about the largeness of his mission that he was given. He finds himself in an obvious state of inadequacy or insufficiency in relation to the task. So he says his confidence, his competence, his adequacy, he tells us, is directly related to God. In other words, his competency, 2 Corinthians 3, 5, his competency comes from God. Not that we are competent in ourselves, he says, but our competence, our, our adequacy, the fitness as being fit for the task comes from God. And here's where we ought to pay attention because this is our first lesson. Once Paul realizes his inadequacy, once he's faced with his inability, his insufficiency, he doesn't run to himself and it's not the worst day in his life. He doesn't make self-empowered plans and schemes. He doesn't create this great to-do list and promises that he's going to redouble his efforts so he can do better. No, and he doesn't just give up either. He's still under charge to the task. There's, there's tons of work to do. But what Paul tells us is, is that his confidence is God, is in God. And so as simple as that might seem to us, that has to mean something to us. This can't just be like fairy talk, right? You know, marshmallow Christianity. So we get all sugared up, go home on a sugar high. Then we wake up Monday morning with a horrible tummy ache. We go to work. We go to ministry, we tend to the home, the task before us confronts us, and in a nanosecond, we're, you know, grasping for dear life. When Paul introduces himself to the Corinthian church, he does so by telling them he believes himself, listen, 1 Corinthians 15, to be the least of the apostles, unworthy to be even called an apostle. So you can get this in your mind. Here I am, church. I am sent to you by God, but I am the last one on the list. But then he says, I am what I am by the grace of God. And the grace of God was not without effect. And so what you're going to find when you read your Bible carefully is that that kind of perspective underpins just about everything in the Bible. In other words, question, when do God's people find themselves in trouble? Here's the plain answer. When they find themselves proud, when they find themselves sufficient, when they find themselves adequate for the task so that God either isn't on the radar screen or God's like second on the depth chart for help. So God then is just being used. The Puritans would say, there is no wrath like the wrath of being governed by our own desires for our own ends. That's what the Bible calls idolatry. Remember the scripture we say here frequently to Chronicles, Uzziah was greatly helped by God until, until he became powerful, until he became adequate, until he became sufficient. And then it says his pride, his power led to his downfall. Now Paul himself was constantly challenged by his detractors. He's, he had critics all over the place. Everywhere Paul went, people were telling Paul, you're not doing it right, you're not doing it right, you're doing it wrong, you're doing it wrong, you're not good enough, you're not good enough. So Paul is prepared to say to them, when all the dust settles, that if there has to be any boasting to be done, 
If there's going to be a, oh yeah, statement to silence my critics, it's not going to be me boasting about my personal achievements, but it's going to be me boasting about my weakness so Christ's power might be displayed in me. Now I want you to think with me. If anyone could have boasted about himself, it certainly could have been the Apostle Paul. But when he goes to the church in Corinth, he said flatly, if you're going to pass out awards, you know, if, if you're going to have an, a Christian award ceremony, isn't that kind of weird to have that? But anyway, a Christian award ceremony to tell us who's doing best. Here's what you should know. 1 Corinthians 3, 6. I planted, Apollos watered, but God, God gave the growth. Now, when you listen to that, there is no way that that's self-flattery. There is no sense of self-promotion. So again, Paul's saying, if there's an award to give out, God would be the one to receive it. But when Paul's critics challenge him, what do they do? Well, what they do is they boast of their credentials. They're called super apostles. And they boast about their skills. And they boast about their service. They love their long resumes. However, you know, if this is going to turn into a spitting contest, Paul would, would more than be a match for them. Because it wasn't somehow that Paul was in you know, a lower grade than them, that he was intellectually lacking, that he didn't have any kind of capacity like, like they had by Dan and Paul's background and training. Paul could go toe-to-toe with them any time in the world. But Paul says, if this has to be a boasting competition, if I have to boast, 2 Corinthians eleven three, 3, then I will boast about the things that show my weakness. Did you catch that? Boast about the things that show my weakness. That is so strange. I mean, that is strange. That is counterintuitive to our fallen nature. Think of it this way. Hey, Mr. X and Mrs. Y, it's your turn. It's your moment for everyone to hear from you. You get to the front and speak us, speak up. And then those deadly words, tell us about yourself. Just, just tell us about yourself. So they come up and they say, okay, you want to know the truth? Yes, we'd like to know the truth. Okay, well, I wake up most mornings with an overwhelming sense of insufficiency and adequacy. I think about the task at hand and it cripples me in my bed. So I have to reach for my spouse's hand and I have to whisper in their ear, please, will you hold my hand and please, will you pray for me because the day at hand is too much for me. And now, right now, before the day even begins, I know and I feel my weakness. So the person listening goes, oh, uh, maybe that's low self-esteem. You know, back of the line with you. We have special classes that will work that weakness out of you next. Now, maybe we can get some, somebody else that can really tell us how it is. Paul is boasting about weakness. So, for example, when Paul was heading to Damascus, he was a Christian hater. He had fire in his belly. He had the papers in his hand. He had a mind that had one impulse, kill Christians, imprison Christians. And Paul was completely adequate for that task. But what a difference there was when God came down. Because when Paul left Damascus, he leaves as a Christian And Luke tells us in Acts 9, and Paul tells us himself, 2 Corinthians 11, he's headed to Damascus with all his entourage. He's leaving Damascus, 2 Corinthians 11, 33, being let down in a basket from a window in the wall because I have to escape. Did you pick that contrast up? 
ladies and gentlemen, tonight we have the famous Apostle Paul, fresh and hot from his successes in Damascus. He was let down from a window in the wall running for his dear life. See the contrast? It's, it's very clear. Paul goes to Damascus to persecute. He is powerfully adequate for the task. He leaves Damascus as the persecuted. He goes in power. He leaves in weakness. But he leaves being right with God. He leaves being right with God. And in between Paul's entry into Damascus and, in, and Paul leaving Damascus, what do we find? We find that he falls to the ground because he sees the glory of the risen Christ. And it's too much for him. He's not adequate at like he thought he was. He has to be led by the hand because he was stricken blind. He has to wait on God for healing. And then he needs someone to come and help him, to lay hands on him, to be healed. And then he preaches immediately, but when preaching, he is persecuted. And he is unable to do anything except run. Now, this is our second lesson from Paul about inadequacy. These things, these elements, these feelings of inadequacy, they were going to be part and parcel of the things that made Paul the man that he was. In other words, inadequacy is a gift. It will never leave us on earth and it will be part and parcel of God's training for God's beloved. He does it to keep us at bay. That's why when we, when we think about Paul's experience of being caught up in the third heaven, 2 Corinthians 12, of being caught up in the third heaven, Paul speaks of it in the third person. I know a man in Christ who was caught up in the third heaven, 2 Corinthians 12, 2. So this is what Paul, this, Paul didn't say this. Yes, it's me. I'm the one. I am so way past being lowered down by a basket in Damascus days. In fact, things are going so well for me because of my little experience that I've doubled my speaking rates. In fact, there's a book coming out. Possibly a movie. I know it sounds incredible, but there could be a movie. But there is certainly going to be a calendar. Does he do that? No. Because Paul knew what all of us should know. Of all the places that we might boast, it is the most dreadful, unfitting, and ugly thing to boast about spiritual gifts because every spiritual gift is a gift. So how could that be the basis of any boasting or any self-focus? How could it? In fact, Paul Paul goes on to say there that that thorn in his flesh was given to him by God for a reason because of his third heaven experience. And I want you to see this is not problematic for Paul. He, he's not set back with this, with this thorn in his flesh. The, the, the Greek word is skopolos. It's actually a spear. So you picture Paul walking around with a spiritual spear driven through his so- side about the size of a man. He doesn't think that somehow the devil beat him that time. And he doesn't think, okay, I just need to make myself stronger because only spiritual weaklings have thorns in the flesh. Listen to how Peterson uh, translates 1 Corinthians 12, 7. Because of the extravagant nature of these revelations, the third heaven stuff, because it was so unbelievably spectacular, and to keep me from getting a big head, Eugene Peterson, so cute, to keep me from getting a big head, I was given the gift of a handicap to keep me in touch with my limitations. Did you hear that? Given the gift of a handicap to make me stay in touch with, with my limitations. That is such a foreign concept. 
I mean, I, I say maybe even in the contemporary church, how, how dangerous, says Bengal the commentary, how dangerous must self-exaltation be when the apostle required so much restraint? How dangerous must self-exaltation be that the apostle who was chosen by God required a thorn in the flesh to keep him at bay, to restrain him? Now again, this is amazing. This is not human wisdom. Paul is confronted by his inadequacy and he finds God's grace as his only sufficiency. His weakness is not removed, but his weakness becomes the channel of God's clean power. His weakness is not removed because ultimately God gives it. And if God decides to, he can take it away because we can't fix it. Sure, we can patch ourselves up for a bit. We can use some spiritual JB weld, but a patch is not a fix, it's a patch. And the contrast The contrast is very, very plain. When I am weak, then I am strong. When I know myself inadequate, I become, because of God, adequate. Now, I want you to listen carefully. The the important thing to remember here is that, that the glory of this doesn't lie in Paul's inadequacy. But the glory is in the adequacy of Christ, which is only discovered in Paul's weakness. That's our third lesson. The, the glory doesn't lie in someone going around saying, I am greatly inadequate, I am greatly inadequate. Because there is this sense in this, at least two things. Number one, the person's just lazy, right? Let go and let God in the wrong way. Or two, that could just be cleverly disguised use of pride. That's someone who's been around, who knows how to speak Christianese. I'm so inadequate, I'm so inadequate. Do you remember David Copperfield, Dickens David Copperfield, Uriah Heep? Uriah Heep was the, the kind of the flaky guy in the story and he was constantly telling David Copperfield just how humble he was. I am an ever so humble man, Master Copperfield, and, and he's so humble that he drops his H's so he says humble, humble, humble. But he's not humble. It's a confidence game. It's a lie. So, so the lesson is not that glory lies in our inadequacy. But rather the lesson is the adequacy of Christ is only discovered in my, in your weakness. And what do humans need most? Do they need us or do they need Christ? Do they need to see the adequacy of Jesus Christ? And weakness is God's best tool. Because to some extent why we we could just get in the way. So Paul says, he goes on, this is again quoting from the message. Now I take my limitations in stride and with good cheer. These limitations that cut me down to size simply make things far more clear. And so the weaker I get, the stronger I become. Now we move on. We need to move on to the second point. But here's the principle. If dependence on God is God's aim, then weakness, inadequacy is our friend. If dependence on God is God's aim, then weakness is truly our friend. If in weakness we are strong, if that is true, 2 Corinthians 12 and so on, if that is true, then weakness is an advantage it is an advantage in the work that we're called to do. So the question has to come, excuse me, <clears throat> do we have the courage to acknowledge this? Can we actually acknowledge it so that God's power may come down on us by God's grace rather than us as a result of kind of self-focused adequacy that, that you know, we might get by standing too long in front of the mirror or you know, we're ready to put that human patch on the thing to fix it for a bit, to kind of amp it up, amp us up for a bit. We get that religious high for a month, a week, or whatever. But that's only a patch. It's not a fix. 
or, you know, we've determined to get ourselves strong. You know, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. So I don't want to be weak. I do not want to be weak. I don't want to look in the mirror and see my inadequacies and thus cut ourselves off from the grace of weakness. Cut ourselves off from the grace of weakness. Now that's, that's the Bible. Now let's take a turn and look at the culture. First point was biblically. Second point, culturally. How, do, how, does this, how are we to understand this culturally? Well, David, David Wells wrote, we have a culture that has a bloated sense of human capacity. A culture which Peggy Noonan wrote, Wall Street Journal, July 29th. This is, I think, the third time I've quoted this to you in four years. Peggy Noonan says, for 30 years, the self-esteem movement told the young they are perfect in every way. It's yielding something new in history, an entire generation with no proper sense of inadequacy. Frank Ferretti, in his book, The Therapy Culture, he reported that in a search of 300 United Kingdom newspapers in 1980, they did not find a single reference to to self-esteem. They found three citations in 1986. By 1990, the figure had risen to 103. A decade later, in the year 2000, there were 3,200 references to self-esteem. And who knows how many there were in America's newspapers just in the past month. He also wrote, and he's not a Christian, this is what he wrote. Low self-esteem is one of the most overused diagnoses for the problem of the human condition. David Brooks, 2011, New York Times, May editorial. He's writing around the time of university graduation. He writes the editorial, it's not about you. And this is what he describes. He describes the graduate setting off into the world with a baby boomer theology that you hear frequently in commencement addresses. Follow your passion. Chart your own course. Follow your dreams. Find yourself. This, says Brooks in his editorial, is the litany, the the petition of expressive individualism, which is still the dominant note in American culture. Today's graduates enter a cultural climate which preaches the self at the center of life. But, and this is Brooks, he's not a Christian, he's Jewish. But the purpose in life is not to find yourself, it is to lose yourself. So that it's no wonder when the Pew polls tell us 70% of Americans think that there are many more ways to God than Christ. And 66% of Protestants also think that there are many more ways to God than Christ. And that hardly anyone knows the moral law, God's Ten Commandments. And evidently there are a great number of people in America who think that Joan of Arc is the wife of Noah. So why wouldn't the self be totally committed to the self? Why wouldn't the self, uncommitted to eternal truth, why wouldn't the self put the self at the very center of the universe? Now, I don't want you to think this is a modern problem. This is something that happened 1947, Martin Lloyd-Jones. The same Martin Lloyd-Jones who, who, when he first came to his first church that he was candidating at, he was a very popular man already with his early 20s. So the church thought they'd make a big poster and have his picture on it and, you know, do one of those kind of like, you know, preaching pictures, whatever they are. And so he saw that poster in town. Then he saw it at his church before he ever got the job. He's in the car with the guy and he said, do not ever do that again. Do not ever do that again. He still got the job. This is what he says, 1947, three years after World War II. We're going to have to have a true view of man. 
And let's acknowledge that what is the popular view? It's the cult of self-expression, a view that has populated every area of life, which is a view that says one has a right to express oneself even at the expense of others. And what one likes is therefore of necessity, legitimate, no matter what. And the only way to get that is when the self is at the very center of the universe. And we can say, if we're thinking, we could say, well, that is like hell. Because hell is the only place where everyone will get exactly what they want with no reference to God, with no reference to God's truth, and no reference to the teachings of Jesus Christ. That's hell. 1946. John Sloan, he was then the president of Dartmouth College. He he has a speech at his commencement address. And there's this line that he says, there is nothing wrong with this world that better humans cannot fix. Then 2011, Jim Young Ken, current president of Dartmouth, he takes that quote, there's nothing wrong with this world that better humans cannot fix. He takes that quote and he says to his graduates, you are the better humans we've been waiting for. That is an elite human perspective with with no reference to God, with no reference to, God, to the gospel. It, it just trashes the gospel. They are the better humans. Now listen, of course we want our graduates to be successful in, in their endeavors. We all want that. But we want them to be first successful at the right thing so we do not fall foul of, of these kind of human achievement epics because that is what the Bible calls a people being lovers of themselves. Listen carefully. That's why we cripple the world when young and youth is wrongly glorified simply because they hadn't had much time to mess up like the rest of us. Human achievement is the world's cure for being average, for being inadequate. Human achievement, even if God is in the picture, if God is used, if, even if God is used as a kind of life coach, is the world's cure for better humans. Because average or inadequacy in the eyes of the world is horrible. But what do we know? What do we know? We know that when we are weak and are prepared to admit it, then we are strong. What do we also know? What do we also know and believe if we're Christians and and we rely on every day? The most powerful achievement in all of human history was when a 30-something-year-old young man who was God hanged naked, bloody, unbeaten on a cross for our sake, that he who knew no sin, who was the most adequate human at levels that we can't even dream of, that person bore in his body our sins, bore in his body our weak flesh, our inadequacies. So when someone comes along like me and says, have you ever considered that the thing you thought was to your loss actually could be to your gain? That what you could think right now is a disadvantage is actually to your advantage? That what you think right now is your harm and you're trying to wiggle out of actually could be to your gain? When you say that, that people look at you, you know, you've got this big horn coming through your head. But when we say, you know, if only I was smarter, if only I was taller, if only, if only I was smaller, if only I was blonder, if only I was in a better location, whatever it is we say, have we ever stopped to think that God knew completely what he was doing when he established our DNA, when he set us up in our body, when providence placed us in our place, and all those so-called faults or disabilities or burdens are for the express purpose of God providing God's power that we don't have 
that we need by faith in Christ so that we might live to our master's glory, right? All those troubles that we call trouble are things that make us know our inadequacy so that God's power can come down on God's people for God's glory. So when the people look at you, they're like, she's not that great. I wonder how she does it. I mean, look at him. He's pitiful. How is he doing all that stuff? So that when we have those, you know, those glaring weaknesses, or better yet, when we have those glaring difficult circumstances, or, or maybe we have difficult children, we have inadequacies that are showing up in the family, there could be possibly a sanctifying element in them that keeps us at bay that keeps us weak and keeps us close to the cross of Jesus Christ so that his glory might be displayed in our inadequacy. D.A. Carson, is not some of the pain and sorrow in this life used in God's providential hand to make us not love the world and be homesick for heaven? It's been way too long since I quoted from Pilgrim's Progress. No, no, says Passion, I want all the good things now. But patience is the better student. They're willing to wait for the best things. They're willing to wait for God's appointed time so that God can be glorified. So when I ask you the question, how good does feeling good really make you feel? And for how long? That starts to make sense. Biblically, when we are weak, then we are strong. Culturally, achievement is the answer. So it's self-absorption. But what does self-absorption bring? Self-absorption makes us feel less self-fulfilled. And so we are erect, as David Brooks said, with self-pity. Contrast that with Paul right up front. He tells the Corinthian church, I'm the worst of all sinners. I'm the least of all apostles. But by God's grace, I am what I am. And that grace was not without effect. What is effect for Paul? Christ being glorified in his inadequacies. Christ being glorified in his weaknesses. Thirdly then, ecclesiastically in the church. Well, the danger for the church, I think it's kind of plain. You know, instead of taking these biblical truths and tending to the culture, we might be tempted to go to the culture and say, anything that you can do, we can do better. And then we wave our Jesus flag. We're better mothers, we're better fathers, we're better students, we're better athletes, we're better at business, we're better at life, we're better at retirement. We are better than you at everything. We are so adequate. Contrast that with the Apostle Paul, 1 Corinthians 2. When I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness with great fear and trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. So, so how, how do we fit into the culture? How does the church fit into the culture? Well, we don't fit in. We go out, right? We go out, but we don't try to fit in. We, we don't tell them we're just like you because there's an infinite difference between a Christian and a non-Christian. We go in or go out to the culture and we are good citizens. That makes sense, right? Just be really good citizen. And we do good deeds. And we're careful not to talk about ourselves so much because we're going to be like Paul and we resolve to say over and over again, Jesus Christ and him crucified, which means for me personally, every time I tell someone about him, I must tell them about my sin and they probably will see my inadequacy so that Christ's power may rest on me. 
mean, think of the last time you talked to someone and they actually came to Christ and re-examine that whole conversation. And maybe, I'm not saying for sure because I don't know, but maybe it was a whole lot about me and not so much about Christ. Maybe we were just too bombastic. So they're like, what in the world does it mean to be a Christian? How is Christ's power going to be seen through us when our weaknesses are displayed? Quote me, quote me. I'm an old clay leaky pot, 2 Corinthians 4, verse Corinthians 4, right? Old clay leaky pot, that's me. Denny, quoting Denny, no one can make much of ourselves and at the same time make much of Jesus Christ. No one can make much of ourselves and at the same time make much of Jesus Christ. So, so I, I wonder sometimes, this is just me wondering, if the churches have gotten to the place where we're embarrassed about our inadequacies, and we're embarrassed that we actually need a cross to save us. So we hide, we patch ourselves up so that Christ is barely seen and Christ is barely heard or worse, Christ is barely needed. Maybe, maybe the modern church in order to gain popularity has forgotten all her sacred theology. And we want to live a life of therapeutic ease, unmoved and untouched by the needs of a dying world. Biblically, culturally, ecclesiastically in the church, now finally personally, right? If we believe all this, if we believe that it is a grace to see God in wisdom, choose the mighty apostle Paul whom he had saved and God gave him a huge thorn in his flesh. We see God cut him down. We see God make him know his weakness. We see God giving him that grace of weakness and Paul has to take it everywhere he goes. It's never gonna leave him. If we, if we believe this is to the good so that Christ's power may be seen through Paul, if we believe that, then if God chose to do the same in us, listen carefully, so I say this in fear and trembling, okay, I have a big yellow streak down my back right now, so I'm not like bring on the weakness, God, I'm not like that. This kind of makes me tremble too. If God chose to do the same in us, wouldn't that be the most wonderful day in our life and not horrible as some might think? And then could we really, really come to the place to believe in the words of Jesus when he said, without me, you can do nothing? And somehow that would be displayed in our life? Augustine said, if anyone knows he's nothing in himself and has no help in himself, the weapons in himself are broken. And the war has ended. The trouble is, as Christians, as long as we're in this old fleshy body, we're involved in an irreconcilable war to our last breath. So then what do we do? Well, we turn to the gospel. We remind ourselves Christ has done all that was necessary to make us right with God. And that it's unmerited grace that stirs in us to keep us pressing on to the gates of heaven. Because that's our destination, right? Heaven. So we keep pressing on to heaven. Now, I'm going to say two quotes, and then we're going to be done. This one comes from a neo-Puritan, new Puritan. Pride will keep us from usefulness in God's service. If we build thrones for ourselves and climb up them, God, in love, will bring us down. Finally, Samuel Rutherford. Samuel Rutherford, who said, if you listen to your pastor preach long enough, he will preach about his own sins. Rutherford said this, be humbled, walk softly, down 
with your top sail. Stoop, stoop. It is a low entry to go in at heaven's gate. Thank you for your attention. Let's bow together and pray. Our God and Father, it is a great mercy when we act on these things. It is a great, great mercy when, when you and your mighty power show us and our inadequacy and we don't try to run from it. Help us to think about the future when the judgment comes and what we thought God was gold and silver and costly stones is actually to be shown actually wood and hay and, and straw. Give us the grace to stay low, stay needy, stay weak, and to stay desperate for you. Help us not to just run away from these things this morning too quickly, but to think long and and hard about them. Teach us not to be afraid of our inadequacies as we pray and send them to you and you give what's best. Help us to know this. Help us to know and believe this to our last breath that when we are weak, then for you, we are strong. And only you can do this, God. So may the love of God and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be our abiding portion both this morning and every morning. Amen.